We are starting a new sermon series today, and, uh, and again, um, I'm going to set it up this way um, in a very unorthodox fashion. So um, we're going to start off, I'm going to ask you a question, okay? And I, if you would, go ahead and put the, put the first slide, Chase, if you don't mind. Okay, so the word, that, that long, or, or that word up there that's kind of, you know, funny, uh, is pronounced in a certain way. You could pronounce it malachi, Right. You could pronounce it Malachi, or you could pronounce it Malachi. Like, there's all sorts of ways you can pronounce it. It's this, you know, it's an old word. And so, I have a question. It's a quiz for you today. Um, this word is a, let's go to the next slide. Malachi is a, an Italian designer uh, footwear company, right? So, it's like a special designer footwear company. If you think that's the answer, then just keep it in your brain. I'm going to raise your hand later. Or, Malachi, Malachi, whatever it is is B, a skin disease which primarily affects the feet and ankles, right? The skin around your feet and ankles, right? Is it the, anybody think it's that? Or C, uh, Malachi is a book in the Old Testament. Okay. Now, obviously, I'm being silly, but the reason I'm being silly... By the way, the answer is C. So any of you that literally like, oh, I totally have heard about that shoe company from Italy. I've got a pair of those Malachis. Anyway, you can, we can go away. Anyway, so... The reason that I mention it in that silly kind of way is because um, there are all these books in the Bible, uh, Old Testament and New Testament, which we just don't ever kind of get to very often, right? I mean, there's New Testament books that are little, and uh, you're like, oh, there's a third Peter. I didn't know that or whatever. You know, there's a Jude, or there's this book called Malachi, which is in the Old Testament. And, uh, and again, there are a lot of books that we're going to hit uh, you know, sort of as we go through different sermon series, we're always going to hit the Gospels. We're going to hit a lot of the New Testament epistles. You know, we're going to hit some of the major books in the Old Testament. But sometimes there are these little books in the Old Testament, which, frankly, some of us really didn't know existed, right? And this is one of them, Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. And it's actually part of what uh, some people have called the minor prophets. Not minor because they're unimportant, but minor because they're usually smaller books. And essentially, before we called them the minor prophets, people would have called them the 12, because there are these 12 uh, books in the Old Testament that were all rather small and were grouped together. Now, here's what's interesting. And again, I don't want to give too much away about the book of Malachi, uh, but I'm going to jump into it really, really quickly. Uh, The name Malachi, the title of the book, is the guy that wrote it was named Malachi. He was a prophet uh, to basically Israel back in the day, and I'll give you some context in a minute. And, and his name means my messenger, right? In other words, he is God's messenger to God's people. And what's interesting is in the, the book of Malachi, there's only four chapters. Uh, Malachi says on 26 different occasions, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, right? So obviously what God has done is he sent his messenger to the people of Israel in order to speak on his behalf. Now, here's the context. The context really quickly is this. You, you guys know from the story of Daniel that uh, essentially there was rebellion, uh, there was idolatry, there was infidelity on behalf of the children of Israel. And so the Babylonians came in and whisked the Israelites away and took them away into captivity. There was a point in time where the king of the Babylonians allowed the people to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple. You're, you're familiar with that from Ezra and Nehemiah, right? Well, so that happened, and everybody was excited. You know, we're building the temple, we're building the walls. And then about 60 or 70 years goes by, and, uh, and then Malachi is sent to speak to the people of Israel, to the children of Israel. And so we're going to take a look at this book, Malachi, and just going to take a couple of weeks to take a look at it. 
and hopefully you'll see some, uh, some great things in here. Let me take a moment. Let's pray first. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you that uh, you have spoken to us um, by many different ways. Father, you spoke to us through prophets. Father, you spoke to us uh, through your son, Jesus. Father, you spoke to us through the disciples. Um, Father, we thank you that uh, you didn't leave us in darkness, but rather, Father, you decided to communicate to us and, uh, and to, to send your son, Jesus, to be the light that revealed to us who you are. And so, Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things today. Amen. All right, so uh, a book that had a, an interesting impact on me before I got to college uh, wasn't Calvin's Institutes, right? It wasn't The Bondage of the Will, uh, but rather it was a book called Love You Forever. Any of you guys ever heard this book before, Love You Forever? So here's a picture. Obviously, this book, Love You Forever, there's a picture of a toddler, and he's sitting on a bathroom floor, and there's toilet paper everywhere, and there's a big mess. But this book was written by a man named Robert Munch, which is a very unfortunate last name, but that just is what it is. It's Robert Munch. Robert Munch uh, was a children's author. And this particular book called Love You Forever was written after he and his wife had been married for some time. They'd been trying uh, to have a baby for a long time. And, and they had two stillborn children. And Robert Munch, as a way of dealing with the grief that they were going through, wrote this book, Love You Forever, as a way to cope with what they had gone through, and even as a way to proclaim who they wanted to be as parents one day and how they wanted to treat their children. And so this book, uh, here's a picture of Robert Munch, by the way, on the next page. There's a picture of him holding one of his adopted children. And essentially, this book is this. Uh, It begins with a, a mom holding a baby, and she's sitting in a rocking chair, right? And it's just a little bitty baby. And, and the mother sings to this little baby, her newborn child, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be, right? That's the first page. Second page is uh, this same mother. And uh, now she's dealing with a toddler. And the toddler is sitting on the bathroom floor. And the toddler has just pulled all the toilet paper off of the, you know, the toilet paper roll, has flushed her watch down the toilet, has, uh, you know, wiped some pudding on the wall. And the mother looks at the child and says, I love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. The next section of the book, the, the little baby is now no longer a toddler, but rather as a little boy. And uh, the, the book makes it clear that as a little boy, uh, this was a disobedient little child who didn't ever want to bathe and said the occasional bad word and did some other things. And again, the mother uh, picks up this child, now a little boy in her arms, and says, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. And you can imagine the book goes through these different eras of this boy's life until he's a grown man. And when he's a grown man, this is really in the book. It says that uh, this mother crawls uh, up to his window, opens the window of his house as a grown man, crawls in the window, crawls across the floor and sings this song to him. Now that gets to the point where it's a little creepy to me, honestly. (laughs) But the overall point is, this recurring line of her reassuring her son, I love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby will be. Now, toward the end of the book, it's, uh, there, there's a, a scene which becomes apparent that his mother has died, right? He sits behind, beside her bed as she passes away. And then this young man, who she sang to all of his uh, life, goes home and picks up his newborn baby girl 
and holds her in his arms and says, I, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be, right? It's this great picture written by this, this children's author of basically saying, one day when I'm a dad, um, I want to be able to you know, love my kids and I want to be able to assure them that I love them. And I want to be able to reassure them and reassure them and reassure them that I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living my baby, you will be. It's this great picture of reassurance of the love that a parent has for a child, right? And the truth is, most of us would be embarrassed to admit that sometimes we need to be reassured that people love us, right? Like it just sounds desperate and, and needy. But the truth is that if we're all honest, deep down inside, all of us need to be reassured, not only that other people love us, but we need to be reassured at many times that God loves us, right? And that's sort of the point of this entire book of Malachi. It's a reassurance. It's God basically saying, I want to reassure you that I love you. Listen to the words of Malachi chapter one, verses one through three. You can read along with me if you will. It says this, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I know that's tricky. We'll get to it in a minute. And I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Okay, let's take a moment. Let's just see very quickly what we see in this passage. The first point that I think I want to communicate to you today is that one of the things that we see in this passage is that the Israelites, right? The Israelites are looking for reassurance of God's love. They're, they're looking for reassurance that God loves them. And by the way, so are you and I. You know, Bojo mentioned earlier as he was leading worship today, the ways that we approach God. We approach him through irreligion and religion. We approach God. When we approach him through religion, what we're doing is we're trying to reassure ourselves that we are lovable to God. God, however is constantly seeking to reassure us of his love. But anyway, so they were looking for reassurance of God's love. Listen to verse two. It says this, God says, I've loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Now, again, you got to, you got to understand the context to even understand why it's important. And you've got to understand the context of why they would even ask this question of God. Because when we read the Bible, we think about, you know, God calls uh, Noah to build a big boat and he saves some people and then they all get out on the earth and there's all this other stuff that happens and Abraham comes along and miracles happen and prophets occur and the temple is built and Jesus comes. We read it in sort of this very macro uh, sort of 30,000 foot view kind of way. But you got to understand that all of this was happening over the period, you know, period of, you know, several thousands of years. And by the time that the Israelites have left the Babylonian captivity, gone back, the walls and the temple have been rebuilt again. Well, from that point in time, it's been about 60 or 70 years, right? And so basically these people, these Israelites thought, well, hey, man, the temple's rebuilt. It's a little smaller than it used to be, but at least it's built. You know, the walls are built back up. Maybe they're not as grand as they used to be, but at least they're built, right? And so essentially what they've been thinking for the last 60 years is this is it. You know, there's this prophecy of the Messiah. Now everything's going to be perfect. Everything's going to be right. Everything's going to be the way that it was supposed to be. God's going to come back and live in our midst. But instead, 
the people that returned and now have been waiting for the Messiah for 60 or 70 years are kind of sitting around the hills of Jerusalem, right? And the, the crops aren't so good. And, and now the Persians are sort of the world power, right? And, 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 you know, and they're sort of depressed and they're a little bit despondent. And, and the happy ending that they thought was going to occur right away hasn't happened yet. And they honestly are just feeling a little bit down. And in the midst of this, God comes along and he says, look, I know you need to be reassured. I get it. I understand that that's normal and that's natural. Let me just tell you that I love you, that I haven't forgotten you. In fact, it's why I'm sending my messenger to communicate this truth to you. Now, let me stop. How many of you need to be reassured of God's love for you? How many of you need to be reassured of God's love for you? If books like The Five Love Languages are true and The Seven Desires of the Human Heart, if those are true, then we all need to be reassured of love, not just every now and then, but we need to be reassured all the time that we are loved, right? Some of you have read um, the, uh, the wonderful book Winnie the Pooh before, at least you've seen the TV specials before. It's written by A.A. A. Milne. And uh, let me put a quote up here very quickly, but, but he captures something really fantastic in Winnie the Pooh. Now, you know, a couple of the main characters are Pooh and, uh, and Piglet. And Piglet's this sweet little mousy little creature who isn't the most confident little uh, character in the whole world. And there's this one scene where Piglet feels sort of forgotten, right? He, he sort of feels like, like nobody's remembered him. He sort of f- thinks that, you know, everybody's all busy and worried about everything else, but not about him. And in the book, there's this uh, great line where it says this. It says, Piglet sidled up to Pooh from behind. Pooh, he whispered. Yes, Piglet? Nothing, said Piglet, taking Pooh's hand. I just wanted to be sure of you. Right? I mean, again, it's a children's book, but what A.M. Millen captures there is that there are many of us who are very much like Piglet in the sense that we need to be reassured. We need to be reassured not only that other people love us, but maybe most importantly, we need to be reassured that God loves us. It's, it's exactly why Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, right? I mean, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as a reminder that I gave my son because I love you. You know, he, he died on the cross because I love you. He lived a perfect life because I love you. He was the eternal Passover lamb because I love you. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion or call it what you will here in this place, every time we celebrate that, it's God knowing that you need to be reassured that he loves you, right? Not only do you need to be reassured through the Lord's Supper, but you need to be reassured through the preaching of God's word through worship leading like Brian Bojo did this morning. One of the hardest things about being a pastor is, uh, is that my job is to preach to you that God loves you over and over and over again. That's my job to preach that to you. But sometimes I don't have anybody that preaches that to me. Does that make sense? And so essentially... Um, That's what I should be doing when I'm preaching, though. My goal to you isn't to give you more stuff to do. My goal isn't necessarily to tell you how, you know, three ways to have a better marriage or or five ways, you know, to better save money and become a millionaire. My primary job as a preacher is to proclaim that God loves you and has loved you through his son. Even the benediction that we give at the end of the service, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and turn his face towards you and give you his peace. God told Aaron to give that blessing to the people. And what it means is don't think that I've turned my face away from you, 
But I want my people to know that I've turned my face towards them, right? That I look upon them with love in the same way that that mom in the story, Love You Forever, looks at her child at the various stages of disobedience and mayhem and bad language and craziness and looks at that child and says, I love you forever. That's what the benediction communicates to you is that God has turned his face towards you, that his face shines upon you and he gives you his peace. God knows that you need to be reassured of his love for you. The next thing we see in this passage is, uh, is really a couple of ways in which God does go about reassuring the Israelites that he loves them. So the question is, how does God do that? How does God reassure the Israelites that he loves them? Well, the first thing he does is that he tells them. Look at verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, I'm going to pause really quickly here. That phrase, the word of the Lord, where it says the word of the Lord, that actually is is sort of a a translation. But what that means is it actually means the burden of the Lord. In other words, God felt so burdened to communicate his love for his people that he sent Malachi to bear this burden, to carry this load. In other words, God is saying, I've got this burden upon me that's so heavy that I've got to communicate it to my people to let them know I haven't forgotten them, that I still love them. And so he tells them very simply, I have loved you. I mentioned before that one of the hard things about being a pastor, for those of you guys who are ever going to go into ministry one day, one of the hard things about being a pastor is that nobody's ever declaring the gospel to me And so what I've got to do is I've got to declare the gospel to myself. And the truth is you need to declare the gospel to yourselves as well. But but one of the ways that I do that is that every now and then I go for a prayer walk or I walk around my office, I walk down Broad Street, I walk along the river, I walk around my neighborhood. And often when I do that, when I'm feeling particularly insecure or in need of God's assurance, what I do is I quote scripture to myself. Here are some of the scriptures that I quote. This is a lot of them. But I'm going to read them all anyway. Here are some of them. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let me, let me say this to you as your pastor today. For God so loved you that he sent his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loves you. Listen to Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me change it again. But God showed his love for you. In that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. God loves you. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? God loved you so, so much that he sent his own son, the son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, because of his great love for us or for you, God who is rich in mercy made you or us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. 1 John 4, 9 through 11, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
Each of these verses makes a declaration. In fact, each of these verses is from the New Testament, and they're interpreting creation. They're interpreting the fall. They're interpreting the pronouncement that a Savior is coming. They're interpreting the prophets. They're interpreting the poetry in the Old Testament. They're interpreting the history. They're interpreting the fact that Jesus came, and the message of every single one of them is God loves you. God loves you. Brian mentioned it this morning. For those of us that have the slightest bit of self-awareness, you know that you're broken. You know that you have sinned. You know that you have rebelled against God, and you need to be reassured by hearing the words of God telling you that he loves you. And it's my privilege as a pastor to declare that to you today. For those of you who are trusting in his son, Jesus alone, for salvation, who have been adopted as his daughters and his sons, you need to hear God's declaration that I love you. I love you. That's amazing. You know, that's amazing. It's a dream come true for some of us to hear that someone loves us. And God reassures the Israelites and you and I by telling us that in this passage. The second way that God reassures the Israelites that he loves them is not just by telling them, but but by reminding them that he has chosen them. Look at verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3 say this, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now let me call time out, because all of a sudden things came to a screeching halt right there. And let me tell you this, that the term Esau right there, when it's obviously referring to Jacob and Esau, and it's talking about how, how God fundamentally chose to, to build his nation out of Jacob and not out of Esau. And so when the term Esau is used here, it's a literary term called a synecdoche, which, and what that means is it's, it's a part for the whole, right? And so essentially what he's saying here, God's not saying, man, I do not like Edom, I don't like Esau, uh, whose descendants were the Edomites, right? But rather what God is saying here is, I chose Jacob to build my people out of. I chose him. And so in order for you to understand this, again, it's important that you realize that what God isn't saying here is that he doesn't want Edomites to become Christians. He doesn't want Edomites to receive salvation, but rather he just didn't choose them to be his chosen people. And there are several different verses in Scripture that clarify this. Deuteronomy 2.5 informs us that Edom's territory was not part of the land promised to Israel, and it never would be, right? So So God's speaking to the Israelites, and part of what he says is this. I'm about to read it. It's not going to be on the screen. But he says this to the Israelites. He says, Meddle not with them, that is the Edomites, Esau's descendants, for I will not give you of their land. No, not so much as a footbreath, for I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. In other words, God's saying, I'm going to take care of Esau. I'm going to take care of the Edomites. I don't hate them. I don't want all of them to go to hell. Right? The Bible makes it very clear that not all Israel was Israel and that any number of Gentiles became believers, but rather what God is clarifying is He's saying, again, they're not my chosen people. He goes on to say in Deuteronomy 23 7, again, this isn't going to be up on the screen, but He says, Israelites, you're expressly forbidden to hate the Edomite. And He goes on to say, for He is your brother. Does that make sense? And so, the, the essence of what this passage is, and it's very tricky, it's quoted in Romans chapter 9 as well, but the essence of this passage is that God is essentially telling the Israelites, I love you, and the way that you know that I love you is because I've chosen you, right? I've chosen you to be my people. Now, that might sound a little bit brutal, but, but I want you to listen to some words from two psychologists, okay? There's a, a book that's probably my favorite book that I've read in the last year. It's called The Seven Desires. It's very, very simple. 
And uh, in it, the book essentially argues that every human being has seven core desires. And it's, it's everything from, you know, being praised for what you do to being loved for who you are to being safe. That, you know, it's all these different desires that we have as, as human beings. And essentially the book argues that if you are ever wounded in one of those areas, especially as a child, or if you're unfulfilled in one of those areas, especially as a child, then you spend the rest of your life groping and struggling and try to get that thing. And one of the the seven desires that these two psychologists who are writing this book, one of the seven core desires is the desire to be chosen. Let me read this that's on the screen. These are psychologists again, not, not pastors and not church people necessarily. They say this, we all desire to be chosen. We desire to be selected by someone to be in a special relationship. The longing starts when we're small and is filled when our parents let us know that they're glad we are born. In school, we long to be chosen for the team or to be asked to play. Later, we yearn to be chosen for a date, maybe the prom. In our adult years, we love it when we're picked to be in a club or an organization or we're chosen for a significant job. Some people choose to be single and yet desire still to be chosen by friends. Some long to be chosen by another person to be in a marriage covenant. This desire for marriage also means we want to be the only one chosen. Like one of the old marriage vows says, forsaking all others, do you take this woman or do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband or wife? What this book touches upon is that one of our seven core desires is to know that we've been chosen. I mean, it's, it's, it's integral and it's integrated into who we are as part of our created order. Now, again, we could get into all sorts of, you know, tricky and divisive debates along with this passage here. And there is a right place to get into those debates and to have those conversations. But I want you to simply right now let the truth of what God is saying sink in for each of you. Because here's what he's communicating. He's basically saying this. He's saying, look, if you've, if you've trusted in my son as your savior, right? If you've trusted in him, then the Bible is very clear that you are responsible for making that decision. The Bible really does talk about that. But you need to hear this, that in the same way, God is also responsible for choosing you and loving you. So, so just hear that for a minute. In the same way that I wanted to pronounce to you the words of God saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. God wants to communicate to those of you who are trusting in his son, Jesus. I choose you, right? I choose you. And here's why it's important. You, you know that God has foreknowledge. You know this idea of omniscience, right? So it's one thing for our wife to choose us or a friend to choose us because they really don't know the depths of our nastiness, right? They, they don't know the thoughts that we had. They don't know the things that we've done. They don't know the experiences that we had before we ever married them. So it's one thing for them to choose us, but it's something different for an omniscient God to look at you and 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 know everything you've ever said or thought or done. And still in all of his omniscience and all of his foreknowledge to say, you know what? I choose prostitutes. I choose prostitutes to be my daughters. I I choose people who have been unfaithful in their marriage covenant. I choose those people to be my sons, right? I, I choose people who look at things that they know they shouldn't have looked at and have said things they knew they shouldn't have said. And knowing all of those things, I choose you to be my daughter, to be my precious daughter, 
I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my daughter, you'll be my son. You'll be God communicates these truths to us. He tells us that he loves us. He reminds us that he loves us because he chose us to be his daughters and his sons. I'm going to end by reading the words of Ephesians chapter one, verses three through six says this praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ adoption, justification, sanctification for he that is God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. He predestined for us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Do I understand the mysteries of that statement? No, but what I do understand is the simplicity of a desire that we all have to be chosen, to be special, to be set apart. Do you need a reassurance of God's love at times? Please. Yeah. If you don't just keep living for a little while. Right. And, and honestly, in that reassurance, it's not enough just to be shown. Sometimes you need to be told. And the good news is that God gives us the prophets. He gives us the epistles. He gives us his son. He gives us, frankly, pastors to declare to us that he loves you. Right. God loves you for God. So loved you. Right. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. He communicates that he loves you not only by telling you, but by reminding you that he chose you to be his daughter. He chose you to be his son, knowing everything you'd ever do, everything you'd ever say, everything you'd ever think. And he chose you anyway. That's awesome. Just wonderful. And the book of Malachi My messenger, God's messenger, he says, I need you to go tell my people this. I need you to go tell them that I love them, that I haven't forgotten them. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would um, reassure us of your love for us. Father, we are broken. We are rebellious. We have chosen many things instead of choosing you. Father, we've held you at arm's length because we are uncomfortable with being told that we're loved, Father. It's hard for us to accept that and hear it. And yet, Father, we need to hear over and over again through the Lord's Supper, through sermons, through the benediction that you love us. Father, let your people this morning hear that. Father, let your people this morning hear that you have chosen them uh, like a husband chooses a wife. Uh, Father, like an adoptive parent chooses a child. Father, let us be strengthened in our knowledge and our awareness that you are heavenly father, that you love us and that you've chosen us to be yours. Father, let that sink into our brains and into our hearts and let it change us. Father, we pray all these things today in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.